Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And since the reading of God's holy and inspired word, please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for having brought us together as your people. We thank you for the wonderful grace we have through Christ. Lord, now as we open your word, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word to do what only you can to cause it to come alive in the hearts of your people. Lord, shape us and mold us. Give us soft hearts that are willing to receive these words as the word of God and not the word of man. Lord, I pray that you'd get me out of the way. May it be your truth that is spoken and may your truth sanctify your people and may you receive all glory, honor, and praise now and always we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To pick up again with our series in the book of Galatians, now, again, just to recap, Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. Paul has been writing to deal with the false teachings that have begun to work their way through the churches, specifically the teaching that circumcision and possibly other elements of Jewish ceremonial law are necessary for salvation. And so Paul, at this point, has identified this false teaching as being a different gospel one that is no gospel at all. By adding to the gospel, you lose the gospel. Paul has built his case over the past few chapters, showing that the teaching of the Judaizers is functionally a reliance upon works of the law, and that the Judaizers, his opponents, are using the law in a way that it was never meant to be used. In chapter 5, Paul has began to transition from his arguments against the Judaizers into some very practical considerations. You may have noticed that through Galatians to this point, there have actually been very few instructions given. It's been primarily theology, uh, argumentation. And while, of course, we have been drawing applications from these statements, if you look to the text itself, you'll notice there are actually very few direct imperative statements, very few direct commands or instructions of what to do. And this begins to shift here in chapter 5 as Paul begins to draw applications from the arguments that he has built. And so our text this morning begins with one such instruction. Let's read it together. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, what does he mean? Firstly, we need to define these terms. What does he mean, firstly, by the phrase, 
the desires of the flesh. Now that can actually be a little bit tricky since the word flesh gets used in different ways in the Bible. Uh, for example, you may know Genesis uh, begins with God instituting marriage, right? the union of a man and a woman are said to become one flesh as their marriage is consummated. Uh, flesh in scripture can also simply mean human nature. Right? Romans 9 says that Christ is descended from Israel according to the flesh. That is, his human nature was descended from Israel. He was uh, yeah, from the tribe of Judah. Um, the word flesh even gets used in a positive sense in Ezekiel 36, where God promises to remove hearts of stone and grant hearts of flesh. And in that case, it means hearts that work, uh, that are rightly ordered and love God as they're supposed to. Um, now, just as a general rule of thumb for biblical interpretation, to know what a word means, you need to look at how the word is being used. And so context determines meaning. In this case here, quite clearly, Paul is using the term flesh to refer to our fallen sinful nature, right? Our will and desires in their sinful state, apart from the intervention of God, apart from the working of the Spirit. And that becomes clear through what follows. Let's read together. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So notice the contrast, these two opposites here. On the one hand, we have the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of God, who indwells every true believer. And on the other hand, you have the flesh, that is our sinful, fallen nature. And Paul says these two are opposed to one another, right? There is turmoil, there is conflict between what our sinful nature wants us to do and what the Spirit of God within us wants us to do. Now, this reality is essential for us to understand. This actually touches on the question of anthropology. Now, anthropology is the study of man. What is the nature of man? Now, if that sounds technical and abstract, bear with me, because whether you realize it or not, everyone is impacted by how they answer this question. Right? What is the nature of man and mankind? And how you answer that question will determine how you answer many other questions as well. This is a cornerstone issue when it comes to building our worldview. Right? What is the nature of man? Is man basically good? Is man a blank slate, a tabula rasa? Is it simply our environments that corrupt us? Is our nature malleable? Now those are deep questions, and how you answer these questions will have far-reaching implications. For example, what is at the root of our conflicts with one another? 
Why is it that even as Christians, we find ourselves so easily doing the things we don't want to be doing? Well, consider the words of Scripture. Here is the biblical answer. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So here's Scripture's answer to this. Our fallen, sinful nature produces desires within us that are contrary to the Holy Spirit, contrary to God and His Word. Because we are by nature fallen and sinful, we naturally desire sin. We have sinful inclinations. We have a bent towards sin and selfishness. Now this is vital for us to understand because if we miss this reality, we are very likely to misdiagnose many of the problems that we face. Now just to give an idea of how practical this is, we can apply it to marriage. If you were to ask an average couple that's having some difficulties in their marriage what they thought the problems were, you might get a wide range of answers. How the problem is a lack of communication. Ah, you know, we just don't get quite enough quality time. Or there's a lack of intimacy in the marriage, or a host of other things. And there may be some truth in those answers. But really, I believe all those things are symptoms. According to Scripture, what is very likely the root issue? Sin. His sin and her sin. At the heart of most human conflict is sin. A marriage is a union of a man and a woman, both of whom have fallen, sinful, selfish natures. Do you want a better marriage? Do you want less conflict in your marriage? Do you want a harmonious home? Then what you need, far more than you need more date nights, or a better understanding of your spouse's love languages, is to come to understand what the Bible says about your selfish, sinful heart. Until you come to terms with this reality and learn what to do about it, all the date nights, personality profiles, love language quizzes, and other stuff will just be providing band-aid solutions at best. Do you want a better marriage? Then both of you commit to this idea. The biggest problem in our marriage is my sin. Or at the very least, the problem in our marriage that I need to be primarily concerned about is my sin. I guess Joel B. Hughes said there's a sense in which your spouse's sin is none of your business. Now, of course, there is a place for confronting sin in a marriage, but there's an important point here. Your first concern must be to deal with your own sin. Consider the words of our Lord Jesus. 
Why do you point at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own? What having a biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of our own nature will do is it will cause us to become very skeptical of the purity of our own motivations and actions. Right? Our natural tendency is to cast ourselves as the hero of the story, of our own story, right? Here I am, a perfectly innocent, perfectly objective person, doing everything right. I am the perfect spouse, and if my wife would just be more like me, we could have a perfect marriage. Understanding what the Bible says about our own sinful nature will cause us to challenge this narrative, to challenge this view of ourselves. So apply this text to yourself. The desires of my flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against my flesh. So if we take seriously what the Bible says about our own nature, we will be far less likely to assume ourselves to be the innocent victim and before we go looking for specks, we'll begin by dealing with the log that Scripture says is very likely in our own eye. Now when we speak about the biblical doctrine of total depravity, we are not saying that we are as evil as we possibly could be. Rather, we are saying that sin has infected and affected every part of our being. Our thoughts, our will, our reason, our emotions, and part of what makes this battle so difficult is that our own perceptions of right and wrong have been tainted by sin. Right? One of the impacts of sin in us is that sin blinds us. Right? It makes it harder to see. Our sinful nature causes us to have a difficult time seeing and identifying sin within ourselves. This, to bring this back to the marriage example, Given my nature, if I acknowledge my own sinful nature, uh, my proclivity to sin, uh, the, the very fact that the desires of my flesh are against the Spirit, well, if my wife and I then have a conflict, I will recognize that chances are pretty good, chances are extremely good, that I have contributed some sin to that conflict. Jesus says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. According to our Lord Jesus, my first duty, before I am even qualified to point to the speck in my wife's eye, is to deal with the log that is in my own eye. I must first deal with with my sin. The root issue in our marriage is sin. Is sin. And in dealing with sin, I must begin with my sin. Having a biblical anthropology will cause us to be skeptical of the purity of our own motivations and actions, and therefore willing to examine ourselves. 
Even if I'm convinced that this particular conflict is 97% her fault, if I have a biblical view of my own nature, this will cause me to be humble and open to the idea that yes, I probably sinned too. And therefore need to confess, repent, and seek forgiveness for this. You start to see how theology and doctrine is inescapably practical. What you believe at the core will have downstream implications. So it is vital for us to understand what the Bible says about our own sinful nature. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So what's the remedy? How do we fight against this, right? Once we've gained this biblical understanding of our own sinful nature, we've come to terms with our own propensity to sin. Now the question follows, what can we do about it? Right? How do we battle this sin? How do we resist our own sinful, fleshly desires? And the answer is there in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Instead of following the impulses of your own sinful nature, which will result in the sins listed in verse 21, follow instead the desires of the Spirit, the leading of the Spirit, the way of the Spirit. It's a quote from a commentator. Uh, just as the desires of the flesh were certain to be done by those who in their deepest selves belonged to the flesh, so every soul which has received the unspeakable gift of newness of life through the Spirit of God will have the impulses to mind and to do the things of the Spirit. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts, we have new desires. And those desires will be in conflict with the desires of our sinful nature. The outcome in our lives, if we were to truly walk by the Spirit, will be the fruit of the Spirit, listed down in verse 22. Love, joy, peace, etc. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote this of the Spirit's role in our lives. As the Spirit comes from God the Father and the Son, so he carries us back again to the Father and the Son. As he comes from heaven, so he carries us back to heaven again. The role of the Spirit is to introduce and intimately acquaint us with the Father and the Son. So here's what walking by the Spirit looks like. The Spirit brings us to God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 describes the path to sanctification. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We become what we behold. We become like what we worship. The Spirit of God is at work in us to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Through Christ's work, applied to us by the Spirit and received by faith, we are reconciled to God and are brought back into communion with Him. 
So the key to the Christian life, what walking by the Spirit looks like, is growing in this communion with God. As we behold his glory, as we encounter more of him through worship, through prayer, through the preaching of his word, through meditation, through the means of grace, we are in the process of being transformed into his likeness. As Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. We become what we behold, and so it's no wonder that we are told so often in Scripture to behold the Lord, to fix our minds on him. A few texts. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Philippians 4, verse 8. And therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. The Spirit's work is to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ, restoring us to true communion and fellowship with God, beholding the glory of God, being what transforms us, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, from one degree of glory to another. So practically, what does this look like? Right? How is it in our busy, day-to-day -day lives that we can seek the things that are above? How do we go about fixing our minds on Christ? How is it that we can behold the glory of God and so be transformed? Well, it's very common within evangelical circles to see people chasing the quote-unquote mountaintop experience. Now, I can relate with this. I remember as a teenager going to a youth conference or having a particularly powerful experience at camp and thinking, okay, this is it. Now I have changed. Right Now I have acquired the fire. Uh, things are going to be different from here on out. And that excitement would typically wear off uh, pretty quickly. And I would end up in roughly the same place that I was the week before. And so we then start longing for that next mountaintop. Right? I just need that next conference, that next summer at camp, that next youth retreat or short-term mission trip or whatever it might be. But the fact is, this is not the usual way that God brings growth. While God can and does use those things from time to time, there is value in them. Spiritual growth, sanctification, 
growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, most often comes through what we might think of as the boringly ordinary acts of regular faithfulness. Right? Nothing flashy, but just the regular grind, the, the devotion to the Lord, reading the Word privately, pondering the meaning of these words, taking dedicated times of prayer, working to grow so that we would be in prayer continually throughout our whole day, regular times of daily family worship, things like fellowship with the people of God, a regular commitment to the public worship of God as we gather on the Lord's Day, being fed a steady, healthy diet of spiritual nourishment through the faithful preaching of the Word, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as well as the spiritual nourishment and special communion with the risen Christ through the Lord's Supper. Things like these, things like corporate prayer, scripture reading, day in, day out, week in, week out. The fact is, God has told us where we may find him. We know the paths where he can be found. Jesus said, those who seek will find. Those who ask will receive. And to those who knock, the door will be opened. So let us ask and seek and knock. Let us walk those paths with a dogged consistency. You know, far too often we get excited temporarily, uh, start some new Bible reading plan, stick with it, maybe for a week or two, or perhaps until we reach Leviticus. Uh, and then we think, you know, this actually isn't doing for me what I wanted it to do. And so we quit. Now that is an awful lot like the guy who goes to the gym, works out for a week or two, concludes it's not working, and then quits. Now if he would just make a plan and stick to it, he might be amazed at what could happen after even just a few months of consistency. In the same way, if we will walk these paths with consistency, diligently, faithfully pursuing the Lord, taking him at his word, that he may be found on these paths, you'll be amazed at the growth that happens over time. God loves to bless consistent faithfulness, steady faithfulness. As we do these things, as we walk by the Spirit in this way, you'll see our heart's affections begin to change. We will be transformed more and more into the image of Christ, and we will therefore grow to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates. As we grow in our communion with God, as Christ appears more and more precious to us, sin becomes proportionately, proportionately, abhorrent. There is a fairly direct connection between our love for God and our hatred of that which offends him, our hatred of sin. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
Notice here, we are not to fight sin through mere willpower alone. You know, many of our self-help attempts at overcoming sin tend to stay on this level. Right? You can think of somebody, somebody battling with pornography and lust. Right? They put all their energy, all their willpower and, and mental energy on avoiding that sin. Right? They're dwelling on their battle with the sin. Notice the person who fights in this way is focusing on the second half of verse 16. Look at the text. They are thinking, I am battling. I will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But what does Paul say is the key to winning that battle? Walk by the Spirit. If we want to overcome the desires of our flesh, if we do not want to gratify the desires of our sinful flesh, then we must pour our energy, our attention, and our willpower into this, growing in our communion with God. The person who misses this will find himself trying to battle in their own strength. John Piper gives the analogy of boats in a harbor. He says all the boats are stuck down in the mud and the muck of lust. And we tend to think we need to come in with our crane of tactics and strategies and willpower, you know, lifting these boats uh, out of the muck through our efforts. And instead, he says, I want to create such an awareness of a deep knowledge of an allegiance to the superior pleasures of God in Christ over against the dangers of hellish lust, that men and women find their boats floating free and don't as often need to use the creative technique, but instead will experience a growing and abiding victory. Think of this. What is the tide that will come in and will lift all those boats up out at once? Walking by the Spirit. Growing in your love and affection for God. It is desiring Him, desiring to please Him, to serve Him, to glorify Him, to find Him more satisfying than you find your sin. So not only must we deal with the negative side, the putting the sin to death, right? Laboring not to gratify the desires of the flesh. But we must place our attention on the positive side. Walk by the Spirit. In fact, as Paul says here, the key to success in putting sin to death is walking by the Spirit. You may remember a while back we discussed the terms uh, mortification and vivification. Mortification means to make dead, to kill, and vivification means to make alive. We are called to mortify our sins, Colossians 3.5, that is to put to death what is earthly within us. But we are also called to stir up the grace within us. You can think of it as the positive and the negative. Uh, to kill sin and to cause uh, the grace within us. To stir up that grace within us. Now, Beaky and Jones write this. Vivification is the quickening or bringing to life of the new nature we have received from God. We must not only seek to kill sin we must also seek to do the will of God. And as Paul outlines for us, 
vivification, walking by the Spirit, is the key to killing sin. So Christian, if you are stuck in some sin, something that has been holding you down, and you are finding that your efforts to fix yourself have been failing again and again and again, heed the words of sacred scripture. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Devote your time, attention, and energy to pursuing God. Lift your eyes up off of your sin and up to the Lord. Be satisfied by the superior pleasure that is found in his presence. Fight sin not merely because it troubles you, but because it is an offense against the God whom you love with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So walk by the Spirit. Use the means he has given you. Commit yourself to daily Bible reading, to pray without ceasing, and to pray especially when facing temptation. Find brothers in the church to hold you accountable, to help you bear this burden. Devote yourself to worship with all of your life, doing everything for the glory of God. And as your love for God grows, your hatred of sin as you become more satisfied in heaven, sin will lose its appeal. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's continue on. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now what does that mean? Well, firstly, to be led by the Spirit is to be a Christian. Romans 8 verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now all people are by nature under the law. It is by God's law that he will one day judge. And as we've seen through Galatians, the law will bring condemnation to all those who are under it, since the law demands perfection. Now being fallen in Adam, we are all by nature and later by choice sinners, lawbreakers. And so all those who are under the law will experience the condemnation of the law. The law therefore points us to our need for a savior. Those who are led by the spirit are sons of God. To be led by the spirit is therefore to be a Christian. And so Christians, those led by the spirit, are not under the law. And what that means is that we will not be judged according to our own law keeping. The fact that we have the Spirit demonstrates we are Christians, and we know that through our union with Christ, we receive his righteousness. Christ has kept the law perfectly, and his perfect law keeping is credited to us. He has died to pay the penalty for our sin, for our law-breaking. He has taken the curse of the law upon himself. And he has risen from the dead, breaking the power of death and guaranteeing the resurrection of those united to him. And so Christians will not be judged according to their own law-keeping because by faith they are credited with Christ's perfect righteousness. He has kept the law on our behalf. And so then, 
those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. As Matthew Henry writes, And those who desire thus to give themselves up to be led by the Holy Spirit are not under the law as a covenant of works, nor exposed to its awful curse. Their hatred of sin and their desires after holiness show that they have a part in the salvation of the gospel. It is vital that Christians battle sin. It is vital that we walk, that we live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. To put this in simple terms, we must stop sinning and we must live for God. It's also essential that we understand this rightly. Our commitment to holy living is not what saves us. It is rather the evidence that we have been saved. Here's how our membership statement of faith puts it. True saving faith and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people will result in good works. These good works flow from true saving faith. They are a necessary result of faith, but are not to be considered necessary to the gaining of justification, which is by God's grace through faith alone, so that no man can boast." Close quote. So catch that there, good works, living for God, turning from sin, mortification and vivification, you know, walking by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, all of this flows from true saving faith. They are a necessary result of faith. But notice, they are the fruit and not the root. They are the fruit and not the root. And we'll unpack that idea more next week as we come to the fruit of the Spirit. True saving faith is a living faith. It is not a dead faith. And as we've covered recently from James, faith without works is dead. Living faith, the kind of faith that God produces in the hearts of his people, is a faith that produces something in people. It will result in good works. And so somebody who continues living in sin, somebody who shows no love for God, shows no desire for worship or to obey him, is demonstrating by their life that the root of the matter is not in them. As Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so fruit can therefore be said to be necessary, but it is necessary as evidence that we are a healthy tree. You know, if you came to a tree that had no fruit, no leaves, no bark, but is dry and cracked, what would you conclude? That's a dead tree. It does not have healthy roots. And so also the person who is not walking by the Spirit, but who is instead walking according to the desires of the flesh, 
That person is giving evidence that they are a dead tree. Good works, walking by the Spirit, putting sin to death, living for God, is not necessary as if we were saved by these things. That's not what we're saying. But they are necessary as evidence that we have been saved. It is not the good works that save us, but the good works give evidence that we have been saved. The Bible holds out no assurance to the person who is living in unrepentant sin. In fact, time and time again, we get warnings like this one. Let's continue on. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we'll unpack these sins next week, but for now we'll just focus on the warning. Now Paul has just spent the past few chapters passionately contending for the glorious gospel reality of justification by faith alone. He has made it abundantly clear that our works do not and cannot earn us a right standing before God. Paul condemned the teaching of the Judaizers precisely because he saw their teaching as a reliance upon works of the law. And yet notice right here in Galatians, Paul declares that those who live in sin... Right, those who do these things, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Justification by faith alone, therefore, does not open the door to antinomianism. That's a big word. Namas means law. Anti is to be against. So antinomianism, antinomianism is to be against God's law, to be anti-God's law. Justification by faith alone does not grant a license to sin. We see right here in Galatians, the same letter where he has been preaching fervently justification by faith alone. He also declares that those who continue to live in unrepentant sin will not be saved. They cannot claim to have faith in Christ and then think that this gives them <clears throat> a free pass to sin. This is not because they are saved by their obedience, but rather because true saving faith produces something in people. Remember, as Paul said, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. True faith works itself out in love. Love for God and love for neighbor. So if you are living in sin, if you are excusing your sin because you think justification by faith alone gives you a free pass, you know, allows you to live in sin and get away with it, heed the warning from the word of God. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
That is to say, those who do these things will be damned. And notice as well that Paul addresses this warning to the churches. You know, Galatians is not a letter addressing non-Christians, but this was written to the churches in Galatia. And so these are professing Christians, and Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before. This is aimed at the congregations in Galatia, at professing believers. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, examine yourselves. Is there anything in this list that describes you? Are you among those who do such things? Is there some sin in your life that you have been tolerating? Is there some area of your life that you are refusing to surrender to Christ? Are you holding on to desires of the flesh that you are unwilling to crucify? You are playing with fire. Sin is no trifling matter. Those who persevere <clears throat> in unrepentant sin will go to hell. We must understand the heinousness of sin. <clears throat> and we must understand the depravity of our own sinful nature. As Christians, we must be ruthless in our battle against sin. Understanding what the scriptures say about our own nature should cause us to be skeptical of our own goodness and therefore always willing to examine ourselves and ready to repent. We must strive in all of life to walk by the Spirit, to bring every area of life under the feet of King Jesus, for there is no part of our lives in which his lordship does not apply. So let us examine ourselves. Do we have sin? Are we among those who do such things? Well, the promise is there to all who repent and believe. You will be forgiven. So let us strive together not to seek to earn salvation through our good works, for that is impossible, but as saints, those who have been declared righteous through the finished work of Christ alone and have been granted the Holy Spirit, let us now live in accordance with the Spirit, growing in our communion with God, our love for our Savior and for one another. Let us grow and diligently use the means of grace that God has given us. Prayer, scripture, meditation, the blessings of being part of a local church, accountability and fellowship, preaching, singing, and the sacraments. Let us put our sin to death and so grow in assurance of our salvation. For we know that those who walk according to the deeds of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God, but those who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body will live. Romans 8.13 
Now, as we grow in holiness, one of the great benefits to our souls is that we become more and more sure that Christ has been working in us and that we therefore are partakers of the covenant of grace. And this gives us deep and abiding confidence that we will inherit the kingdom. Our heart's deep desire will one day be fulfilled. For we will be with Christ, and this battle against sin will be won. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.